Hello and welcome to another episode of Game Creativity. I'm Alexis Parks. And I'm Connor Verrett. And we are co-hosting today's podcast, Everything You Need to Know About Esports. What is esports? So esports is essentially any type of competition with video games. Um, and it can be team-based, it can be individual-based, um, and it's between professional players, amateur players, just people in general. Can you talk a little about how esports was started? Yeah, so the first esport event was uh, in 1972 at Stanford University. Um, in a game called Space War. Um, and, you know, ever since then, with introduction of new games like Call of Duty, Counter-Strike, um, uh, Valorant, Overwatch, it's kind of grown exponentially since then and largely been influenced by the amount of um, the amount of content creators, things like YouTube, Twitch, really helped it grow pretty quickly. Okay, to get into it, what are some examples of esports? Yeah, so some examples of esports would be Call of Duty, CSK, CSGO or Counter-Strike Global Offensive, League of Legends, Overwatch, Valorant, Dota 2, Fortnite, and Warzone. These are all, you know, video games, and they all have their own competitive aspects, and some even have their own um, competitive leagues. And just to touch on Fortnite and Warzone a little bit, um, there's a big difference in esports between controller and keyboard players. Uh, the biggest difference is that keyboard players, they're using an entire arm to play the video game. So they have a lot more muscles, and generally, they're in a first-person shooter game, they're going to have a lot more accuracy. And it's generally agreed upon that um, controller players... Um, are going to have a lot better movement in a first-person shooter game because it's easier to hit the buttons than move across keyboard hit the keys. Um, and there's a big debate if these keyboard and mouse players on a lot of PC games should be playing a lot of controller players on um, console games. Um, so a lot of the, some of these games are PC only, some of them are console only, and with cross-gen now, uh, they're a lot of times now they're competing against each other. So, that's, so some of these games are originally only PC, some of them are originally console, and that's um, creating some conflict, uh, but you know we're going to get into that a little bit when we get more into the uh, more into the podcast. What does an esport competition look like? Yeah, so there's two main types of esport uh, competition. There's online tournaments where players can play for their own homes. Um, they use their own equipment. Uh, they play on their you know their their own internet connection. Sometimes they'll be like in team offices and they'll be with their whole team playing on an online connection. Um, but there are some drawbacks to this. Players can get booted by um, people watching the event. And this happened in 2020 at the Call of Duty League Championship with the player Kenny. People were betting on the match, so they were DDoSing his Wi-Fi so he couldn't play play in the match and with the hopes of Optic Gaming losing the match. Uh, so that's one one drawback of an online tournament. Another, another uh, pep part about an online tournament is that it favors inexperienced players because they don't have to deal with the pressure of a crowd and all the intricacies of, of traveling and not using their own equipment. Um, and this, this online... Uh, it's online because it's online. There's gonna be a higher latency and higher input lag between players playing, and the players that live closer to where the server, whatever server is hosting the match, are gonna have an advantage. So a lot of professional, experienced professional players really discount um, victories on on online tournaments. Um, and there's a lot of professional players in the Call of Duty community that specifically discount the 2020 championship as not being valid because it was played online due to COVID-19. And another thing, another example of how like. How important like connection is in an online tournament is that all professional Call of Duty players, or almost all of them, moved to Texas because it had the best internet um, setup if, in 2020 because of COVID. Um, there are some very serious drawbacks to an online tournament. Now, on the flip side, there's a LAN tournament or a local area network tournament where players travel across the country to, to go to a stadium or some kind, some kind of um, big venue where there can be a lot of people watching, and they all play in the same network, so they all have the same latency, and there's no advantage based on location or um, internet connection and this allows uh and one interesting part of this is that it changed the tactics of the game uh specifically in fps games uh movement is a big part of the game and when you have some sort of latency it always gives the advantage to the player that 
um, challenges the gunfight or challenges the um, the action first. So players can use complex movement techniques to get an advantage over other players in an online tournament. However, in a LAN environment, there's no latency. So it really makes the game a lot slower. It makes it a lot more tactical, a lot more slower paced than online tournaments where players can just make moves they wouldn't get away with on a local area uh, network. And another big part of it is that equipment is provided for you to land tournaments. So you, you can't use the comfort of your own controller, your own keyboard, your own computer, um, which makes it a lot a lot more uncomfortable experience for inexperienced players because they've never had to deal with this. They've always been playing from their own home, their own basement, their own office. Um, and you know, one, one pro of this is that there, there's no really suspect of cheating. Uh, I mean, leagues do their best to limit cheating on online tournaments, but you know, you can never fully limit that possibility that someone's using some sort of hack or some sort of um, some sort of uh, wire wire connection that gives them some sort of advantage of another player. Um, and another interesting aspect of a local uh, area network tournament is that uh, the crowds mean that you can't get full advantage of the audio audio cues. So you can't hear maybe the footsteps of your enemy or just communicate with your team. And this is a bigger impact on. Um, Esports that are multinational. So in Dota, a lot of teams are maybe from Asia, from America. They speak different languages, and they have to communicate. They have to listen very carefully to each other to communicate effectively. But larger, larger crowds mean that this communication is going to be a lot more difficult, especially those teams. And there's a lot of gambling that takes place betting against those teams because in a large arena, they're going to have a harder time. And some sports have even provided soundproof boxes for these teams because they know how much harder it is for them to um, be able to hear. And this 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 type of environment really um, gives veterans an advantage because they had have had a lot of experience of this. Um, and just with, with COVID, um, we've seen a lot of veterans being benched or having to retire because they're playing online, so it's giving a lot of these inexperienced players an edge. So that's just one side effect of COVID and one difference between a local area network tournament and an online tournament. Okay, let's talk a little bit about how esports differs from traditional sports. In esports, there are franchise models and club models. Could you talk a little bit about those to both? Yeah, so um, when you're thinking about traditional sports, most, most traditional sports teams in America use employ some form of franchise model, you know, where you have one team in a specific city, they have an ownership group, they have a GM, um, you know, and the fans are mostly regionally based. You know, people from Baltimore are going to support the Baltimore Ravens, people from Seattle are going to support the Seahawks. Uh, a club model is a little bit more like what you see in uh, professional soccer, although those teams are still regionally based. It's a little bit more like, you know, you have to qualify for a tournament, um, or you qualify for like a league, and then you can get put down in relegation. Uh, in esports, how that worked was it was and it still works like this in a lot of esports. There were esports organizations. They would have teams in different uh, esports games, the games that supported esports, and um, they would enter into these tournaments. Um, usually, there'd be one organization that would maybe host like a championship tournament, and teams would have to qualify in qualifying matches to then make the tournament uh, to make the championship tournament. And more of a franchise model, um, in the Call of Duty League, how this worked was each ownership group would have to pay $25 million for um, a spot in the league. And the spot in the league, would it would be tied down to a city. And originally how it worked was, um, before before they moved to a franchise model Call of Duty, it was more the club model where each esports organization and a lot of them um, could have had their own team that qualify. And there was a group of big esports organizations, names you may have heard of, like Optic Gaming, FaZe Clan. Um, Cloud9, these were all big organizations, and also a lot of little, smaller organizations like Westar, um, E United. And when they moved to the franchise model, a lot of these little organizations were not able to purchase these league spots. And additionally, some teams, like 100 Thieves, didn't want to purchase a league spot because originally they weren't allowed to use the name of the org as the team name. 
Um, so you have teams like Seattle Surge, which is owned by Cloud9, but they weren't allowed to use the name. So there was a lot of debate over whether this was worth it because uh, the fans had typically supported an org or supported the players around the org, not specifically where the org was located. Um, so there was a lot of debate whether this was worth it or not. And 100 Thieves, one of the biggest esports organizations, ultimately decided not to invest in this league. And that's one of the drawbacks to the franchise models that, you know, you're playing games online. You're not playing, you're not playing, like, it's, it's a very global community of games. You're playing against people across the world. So there's a lot of debate whether this traditional sports franchise model actually works for esports because, you know, it's an esport. It's not like a traditional game. And then also there's a lot of different games. So, I mean, you have soccer and football. Those are two completely different sports, but there's so many different video games that all have some sort of aspect of competition and that the same organizations are playing in these playing these things. And usually someone would support, you know, someone would support FaZe Clan's uh, Counter-Strike team. They'd all support the Call of Duty team. And... You know, when you have a franchise model where it's owned by Face Clan, but they have to be called something else, it doesn't make sense for a lot of works. But some orgs really would find a way around this. Um, for example, Face Clan, they named, they had the city come first and then Phase come second, so they're Atlanta Phase. But not all orgs knew about this. So you have some teams like New York Subliners. No one really knows what org owns. No one that's not really an in-depth fan knows what organization owns them. And it made it harder for fans to be fans of cross esports teams because they had to be very, very in tune um, to who to who owned uh, to uh, who owned that group. And then another issue is that these minor orgs lost a chance to really compete. They were relegated to the Challengers League and had no way of actually breaking into this professional league. Um, like teams like United, United West Star, they were big orgs that sometimes made a huge run. And United won the championship before uh, the franchise model kicked in, but they're in the Challengers League now and they can't even compete. Uh, so in Call of Duty and other esports, moving to the franchise model is really, really taking a big impact of um, taking a pick, change, change the way the league works and how the esport works in a huge way. So what's the difference between amateur leagues and professional leagues? You touched on this a little, but how do the amateur leagues work? Yeah, so in most games, amateur leagues are typically just a community of players um, on some sort of online forum like maybe Reddit or uh, a Discord server that just kind of set up their own tournaments or sometimes even their own leagues. And a lot of these maybe even wager matches where they'll put up a little bit of money. Whoever wins gets a $5 pot, $100 pot, something like that. And, and some esports revolves completely around Twitter, these amateur leagues. Um, and it's a very, you know, um, who, who do you know kind of network. And if you can kind of network enough within these amateur leagues, some people can make their way up to the pro league if they network with the right people in these pro in amateur leagues. Um, and some games have third-party websites, um, for example, Game Battles that Activision uh, runs that host amateur leagues, amateur tournaments. And the Game Battles website actually hosts the official Call of Duty Amateur League, which is the Challengers League. So um, there's varying levels of, of amateur leagues. Some are just kind of rec leagues, and some are legitimately possibly paths to the pro leagues. Um, and Call of Duty isn't the only esport to kind of have this challenger scene um, or amateur scene. Um, and a big part of really developing these esports is the games themselves implementing some form of league play. Uh, no one really wants to watch an esport that is too far different from the game they're playing. So uh, developers, there's been a lot of push from the esports community for the developers to add a game mode or something within the game that emulates the type of league play. Because let's use Call of Duty, for example. Um, typical Call of Duty matches are 6v6, um, and you can use whatever weapons you want, whatever attachments you want, um, and there's a plethora of game modes. Professional Call of Duty is 4v4, three game modes, and there's a lot of restrictions, official restrictions, 
on what kind of uh, guns, attachments, that sort of thing you can use in, in the game. Um, and additionally, there's even gentleman's agreements, which are not official rules, but rules that the players enforce um, by, if you break that rule, there's no one to practice against. They're called GAs, essentially. Um, and the, some of these games are so different from, um, some, of these, some of these professional leagues are so different from the original game that developers have to create their own mode for them. Um, and these, these really, these, uh, these, you know, uh, league play, uh, game modes are really what fosters these amateur leagues and allows people to have some sort of path to pro. Could you touch more on the gentleman agreements and maybe provide some examples? Yeah. So a gentleman's agreement isn't really something that exists in regular sports. And I think some part of the idea of the franchise model was that they wouldn't have to be gentlemen's agreements or unofficial rules, but, um, video games just change so much and how competitive works is a lot different than how the original game often works. So players are often forced to um, vote on a gentleman's agreement, which how it works in, for example, Call of Duty is the players, captains, they have all representatives in a captain's, um, captain's forum and they all vote if some, they think something is out of balance or overpowered. An example would be um, the 1911 pistol in Call of Duty Black Ops Cold War. Uh, this pistol was very over overpowered according to the captains um because it's supposed to be your secondary secondary weapon not your primary weapon however it had the um, damage potential and output of a primary weapon so the players in the league all voted to gentlemen's agreement it and how this is enforced is if someone breaks a gentleman's agreement and uses the 1911 pistol for example all the other teams in the league and all the amateur teams too um, agree that they will not practice with you and in esports the only way to practice is by um, scrimmaging other teams so it's, it's a pretty effective way of enforcing things. However, there has been some community pushback because people want to see the game played how they play the game. So there's kind of a back and forth there between the players and the community about what the rules should be. And it, it is a huge way of how uh, esports differ from traditional sports because you never really see that in soccer or football. So most colleges, when it comes to sports, have some kind of league. Um, why doesn't the NCAA support this? Yeah, um, one of the biggest reasons that there are so many different video games. Uh, it would be very tough for all college for colleges to determine which video game it makes sense for them to fund a team because if they wanted to treat all esports equally. I mean, there would be you know ten, fifteen, twenty esports teams that they all be supporting at the same time. Um, and there's differing levels of interest in by country. And another reason is that most pro players are uh, in high school or would be college age. And if they could make money while playing sports, it doesn't make sense for the NCAA to support it because they have to be amateurs. Another thing is that not all players, but all players to a degree are also part of the influencer economy. So a lot of them also live stream their games or have some sort of sponsorship deal where they can make money. And this would not really align with the NCAA. So it doesn't, doesn't really fit within what the NCAA does. And there's just so much diversity of games where college esports have never been able to really grow. Now, there are esports clubs at colleges, but... Um, and college students may make teams that compete in amateur leagues, but there's very little actual college support um, for esports. You just mentioned how esports differs across different games, but could you mention more specifically how they differ? And also, were esports were some games created for esports, or did they become esports after they were created? Yeah, definitely. So some games were very specifically designed for esports, and some recent examples of this were Valorant, which you know months a couple only a couple months after not even a month weeks after its creation already had its own esports circuits esports tournaments um organizations getting esports teams ready and nowadays like some games 
are created and while they're in beta have esports uh, organizations funding teams and getting teams together. So I think now today you're seeing a lot more games that are specifically created for esports, but prior to you know recently that wasn't really a thing. Uh, games like Call of Duty, which have a huge esports following, were not created for esports and it's part of the reason we see different differing rule set uh, between them. Um, Halo, another example, uh, Counter-Strike Global Offensive, while it's always been a competitive game, um, there's a different competitive rule set than a regular rule set. Um, uh, Minecraft, you might not under, like, no one really, you might not think is Minecraft a game that can have esports, but um, it's actually one of the most popular because people like to speed run the game, um, and whoever can do the fastest time has been a huge thing. And there's also mini games in Minecraft which have become an esport in their own right. Obviously, there's no professional league, but there are tournaments where you can play in and win cash prizes. So I would consider an esport. Um, an example of this maybe not working so well is with Overwatch. Uh, it was created in 2013 and it had its own franchise league in less than three years. And the game was purely multiplayer, had no campaign, no lore. It was just all multiplayer, uh, wasn't going to have a lot of updates. And while it's been cash positive and generally uh, profitable, uh, there's been a dying interest for the game. And you know, people, a lot of people have been saying in the community that maybe they moved to a franchise model too quickly. Um, and another example, the recent Battle Royale trend, those games were not created with esports in mind. Um, specifically Fortnite and more recently Call of Duty Warzone, there's been a lot of debate over how these should be played as esports because people want to play, play these games competitively. Um, and this brings back into conversation the mouse versus keyboard thing is that these games are both cross-platform and you're going to have mouse and keyboard players playing against each other. Uh, and that's specifically in Fortnite has caused a lot, of, a lot of drama and there's now been a segregation between mouse and keyboard players because there was so much debate um, because developers were putting in some form of aim assist for controller players and at a certain point keyboard players said it was too much and essentially gave controller players... Um, an artificial advantage over them. Um, and there's two ways of actually running these battle royales as um, as esports uh, that differ completely from, you know, just uh, a, a Counter-Strike Global Offensive match or a Call of Duty match where you just have two teams of four, uh, two teams of four just trying to win, um, win over an objective, capture a flag, plant a bomb, something like that. It's completely different. So one way how to do the uh, battle royale esports is that you have a kill race. So essentially... Um, could be individual, it could be a team of two to four, drop into the Battle Royale map, either Fortnite or Warzone, and they have a set time limit, and they try to get as many eliminations and uh, high placements as possible with the, high, most, the highest point total as possible. Um, and this is generally agreed to be one of the more entertaining game modes, and influencers play in these matches all the time, and a lot of streamers play in these matches all the time because they're very popular to watch. Um, however, there are some issues with this, this. Um, is that there's skill-based matchmaking in a lot of these games to protect newer players, and a lot of um, some of these competitors have been able to manipulate the skill-based matchmaking to get into easier lobbies and have an artificial advantage. Um, and just clarify real quick, skill-based matchmaking is a matchmaking system that uh, places you in games based on your skill level, and people have been abusing it to get high-skill high players in tournaments abuse this system to get into games with low-skill players so they can get more kills and higher placements and win tournaments. Um, and additionally, uh, since it's going to be an online tournament, you can't do a kill race uh, in LAN, in a LAN environment, um, you have the possibility of people using cheats and hacks in their computers.
because they're not all using the same computers that were provided by the tournament organizer. And then the other way of doing a battle royale esports, which um, completely differs from the rest of esports, uh, is that you can have um, all the best players in the world in the same battle royale lobby, and you know whoever wins wins the game. However, this isn't really popular. Um, it's people do it, but it's generally agreed upon to be less entertaining than the kill race. And a lot of influencers swear off this. They don't play in these tournaments because, to be quite frank, they say it's too sweaty, too try hard, try, try too try hard, and just not fun to play in. Um, and this is caused by a couple of reasons. One is stream snipers. So people will watch the big, bigger players, more more popular influencers play the game. Um, and then follow them, try to get into the same game as them, and then go into the games with the sole purpose of killing them and ruining their experience. Um, and then the other thing is that people people play this. Repetitions really matter in esports, so people will know exactly where maybe a very popular player is going to land in a battle royale game and land there specifically the sole purpose of killing them and ruining their experience. So it's really hard for more popular players and higher skilled players to have fun in these tournaments because there's a big bigger target on their back, which. Is and these games weren't designed to be competitive, which has been an issue. Of how do you establish a competitive battle royale, or how do you establish a competitive Halo game when the game wasn't designed to be competitive? Um, which is which really differs a lot from Valorant or Overwatch. So, who's actually investing in esports? Yeah, so there's a lot of prominent celebrities. Um, Drake, for example, the uh, famous rapper from Canada, is invested in 100 Thieves and FaZe Clan. Now, he's personally direct uh, invested in FaZe Clan, and many people would consider him... Or sorry, he's personally personally uh, invested in 100 Thieves, and many people would consider him a, a member of 100 Thieves, unofficial, or more so a part of 100 Thieves and FaZe Clan, because his investment in FaZe Clan is kind of indirect. He's invested in a firm that has invested in FaZe Clan, um, but he's invested in both. And then another one is Scooter Braun, who was the manager for Justin Bieber and some other... Uh, pretty famous pop stars you might know. He's invested in 100 Thieves, and he's also, he's a big venture capitalist, which is why he's invested in 100 Thieves, but he's also providing some sort of, biz, a lot of business guidance and help for help, helping them grow and introducing them to more venture capital investors. Kevin Durant, um, pretty famous basketball player for the uh, Brooklyn Nets, is actually invested in New York's Call of Duty professional team and uh, the, the New York subliners. And more, he's, more, he's invested in their org uh, in general, but their most prominent team is the subliners. Um, a lot of traditional owners of sports teams um, are invested in esports, um, which was one of the reasons why esports moved to a franchise model because in order to get capital from these investors, they had to move the model to a more to a, mo- a model that they were more familiar with. Um, and some famous athletes, traditional athletes, are also investors. Like Juju Smith-Schuster uh, actually launched his own esports organization. Previously, he was invested in FaZe Clan, but um, he actually said he'd launch his own organization. Pusha T, not an athlete, but another uh, famous rap- rapper, is one of the sole owners of Chaos Esports Club. Um, and there's some other other athletes off the top of my head who are invested in uh, invested in esports are um, uh, Shaquille O'Neal's son, uh, some other famous uh, investors, and... Uh, people in esports. Uh, LeBron James' son is actually a member of FaZe Clan and an investor of FaZe Clan. Uh, more of a member rather than an investor, but endorser of FaZe Clan investor by association. And um, another prominent investor uh, is Offset from the Migos. He's a member of uh, another uh, investor and member of FaZe Clan. So there's a lot of famous people that are members slash somewhat of an investor in these esports, um, which, you know, Help diversifies their portfolio as well as uh, 
allowing more exposure to come to esports. So where are esports tournaments held, and how do people watch them? Yeah, so as I said previously, a lot of them are held online or, um, or held in person at a local area network tournament um, in some sort of stadium or some sort of arena or just any kind of venue in general. Um, and they range in size from local events to you know, large-scale events like the Fortnite, um, Fortnite World Cup. Uh, now, people, where do people watch them? They're all pretty much all live-streamed. Um, but actually, in the past, they were actually on uh, you know, regular TV when people still had that. Um, USA Network actually broadcasted the Halo 2 MLG season on TV in 2006. And that actually is how a lot of, a lot of people at eSports today found out about eSports, like Optic, or sorry, Hunter Thieves owner Nate Shot remember, remembered watching that as a kid, and that's how he got into eSports. Um, now today, there is a couple, couple different live streaming services that they're mostly out on. Um, largest live streaming service is Twitch. Now it's owned by Amazon, um, and it's one of the most, probably the most popular for live streaming by video game content creators because it just has a very good user interface and it's pretty easy to monetize. Um, because once you hit a certain number of viewers, you can then add, you can then get uh, Prime subscriptions, and anyone with an Amazon Prime account can use their Prime subscription on the um, on the live streamer and can. And doesn't have to watch ads to watch their uh, live streams, and can also get custom uh, emojis and stuff like that for their chats, uh, because a big part of live streaming is that you can chat, and these live streamers um, are pretty interactive to chat. But this, it makes sense for the same service for live streamers and influencers to also to host esports events. So Twitch is a big one; um, it hosts a lot of Valorant tournaments. Most of the Warzone and Fortnite tournaments are live streamed on Twitch. Uh, one of the drawbacks to Twitch, though, is that it is facing growing controversy. Amazon hasn't really done a good job of um, maintaining and growing the brand. Um, so they, a lot of prominent streamers recently have been getting banned or being suspended without any good reason. Um, it's also incredibly hard to discover new streamers on the channel, on the, on, on the service. Um, just for example, Dr. Disrespect was probably the, one of the largest streamers in the world and was banned from Twitch, and Twitch gave no explanation. He's claimed he's never received any reasoning from Twitch, but it left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouth for Twitch. Uh, but it's it is still the most popular live streaming service for video games. Um, now, another one would be YouTube. And YouTube uh, is more known for its video services, but recently, with its YouTube gaming and its head, Matthew Fwiz, has been really trying to grow its gaming uh, live streaming platforms. And you know, one of the biggest moves that it did was... Um, it has an exclusive contract to the live stream to Call of Duty League, um, which is the most popular eSport uh, eSport on console. Um, and YouTube, as you all probably know, is owned by Google, and they've put in a lot of effort in trying to expand, unlike Amazon, who's really kind of left Twitch on its own. Um, now, YouTube is really not the best platform for live streaming. It's really hard to find live stream content. Um, it's not the easiest to monetize for um, streamers. So... That's why Twitch probably has, I mean, Twitch does have a lot more streamers, uh, prominent streamers, big, bigger names than YouTube, but YouTube's growing a lot faster, I would say. Um, and it's, it is making a big effort to get these exclusive contracts. Now, there's also, now this isn't a service anymore, but it's called Mixer. It used to uh, host esports events on it, but, and it was owned by Microsoft, but uh, Microsoft, again, did a poor job of maintaining the service, and they shut it down um, last year, and it left a lot of streamers out the dry with no service for their fans to continue watching. I mention this just because um, it, 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 is, it is important to, like, to note how competitive 
the market is to, ho to host these esports events and to provide live broadcasting because it not only brings attention to the platform, but attention to a lot of streamers in the platform. Um, Facebook Facebook has been making a play at this with their Facebook gaming. Um, and it's not really popular in America, but it's got a really large audience in um, places like India. So it's it's yet to really see it's really yet to be seen what it could do in America, but it's not super popular there yet. Um, another one that used to be popular that used to host Call of Duty Halo Gears of War um, is MLG TV. It's owned by Activision now, um, and it really it really lost most of its forward momentum um, that it had previous ga previously gained because uh, it it didn't do anything other than just allow you to watch Call of Duty and uh, Gears of War, and they they stopped they stopped allowing Gears of War, they stopped allowing Halo because it's now it's owned by Activision, so it's kind of a dying website. Um, but so Twitch and YouTube are really the main ones, and one of the issues that's being caused by Twitch and YouTube's you know kind of turf war that ended up killing Mixer is co-streaming. So co-streaming is when a popular streamer on that platform watches the esport event with their live audience to boost viewership. And I know a lot of you are probably thinking, you know, it's weird enough to watch someone play video games, but who would want to watch someone watch someone play video games? But it's actually been a huge deal for esports events, especially with COVID when people can't go to the events um, and when they're trying to grow their audience with that, uh, grow their audience. Um, so esports leagues will pay these streamers um, a certain amount of money to then watch the esport event and then bring their audience to watch the esport events and hopefully create new fans. And one of the problems with the whole Twitch and YouTube thing is that Call of Duty, for example, it's it's streamed on YouTube. But if you're a partner um, partnered on Twitch, which means you can get the the Prime subscriptions, you can't watch a YouTube live streamed event. Or and also Call of Duty can't give you permission um, to watch the event since you're a partner with Twitch and Call of Duty's partnered with YouTube. So it's created a bit, kind of big turf war and a lot of competition between YouTube and Twitch over who can get the best exclusive deals with these influencers and streamers, and who can get the best exclusive deals with these esports leagues. Um, and just an example of this, uh, one of the most famous Call of Duty uh, influencers and streamers who actually owns his own esports e org, uh, Nate Shot, he owns 100 Thieves, who has their own Call of Duty team, had to drop his Call of Duty partnership, to, or sorry, had to drop his Twitch partnership to stream, to co-stream Call of Duty events. Um, and another example of uh, this working is... Uh, Shroud, one of the largest streamers on Twitch, who previously had a contract to stream exclusively on Mixer before it shut down, streamed the Valorant Championship and had, had more uh, viewers on his channel than the actual uh, Valorant Championship had viewers on their channel. So it just shows, goes to show you how, how much competition there is in this space over who can broadcast esports, and it shows you how, how, how fast and how profitable esports can be and how fast it's growing. So there are a lot of different teams when it comes to esports. How do their business models differ? Yeah, so when it comes to esports, I would say there's kind of two, maybe three main ways that teams kind of generate revenue, not generate revenue, but kind of position their business. Um, now, the first way is they could focus on getting the best players and just assume that if you get the best players, you'll win the most, and then you can build the best brand and the most valuable company. Um, and it's also important to note that there's esports organizations, and then they own individual teams or have individual teams. So they have to have the best players in multiple teams. And then these organizations also have influencers that make content for them. So there's a couple different arms of a typical esports uh, organization. Now, let's talk about Optic Gaming. Optic Gaming, um, they were always a competitive team, but their, com their, uh, their competitors and people on their team 
were also influencers and also had their own personal like channels where they live streamed Instagram accounts where they became in Instagram influencers. Um, and there was a focus on creating the best content and showing people, you know, how they were competitors and they, they would always make vlogs. They always live in the same house. Um, and that was a big part of how they grew their brand and how they were able to eventually buy the best players and then have these players create their own brands. And a big part of what they were saying is that of, the, of them being able to recruit players is that we can help you build your own brand. And once you maybe have to retire from esports, you'll be able to retire from the money that you can make as then being an influencer. Um, so their approach is content first. And they say winnings first, but most teams will t most people that have been on their team will tell you that the content is the most important thing to them. They can, they can come second place as long as they have the best ratings, most views on YouTube, Twitter, Twitch, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, just kind of evidence of this is that most esports teams have e – every most players on every esports team will be in, an influencer in some shape of way, but no one does it like Optic Gaming. Most teams maybe live stream some of their early season practices or, like um, – not practice with their team, just when them playing in general. Optic Gaming live streams all of their practices. And one of the reasons sports, most esports teams don't do this is because they don't want other teams kind of studying how they practice. Um, and Optic, they have some influencers that aren't on their professional team, but they're usually people that used to be on their professional team and then retired and then stayed with the brand. So it's, it, it's a lot different than uh, you know, an organization like uh, Envy. Now, Envy is, well, they, they do make content. It has, no one watches their content. You're not an Envy fan because of their content. You're an Envy fan because of their players. And there's actually some Twitter beef between them, Optic, and Hunter Thieves, which we'll get into later, is that, you know, they were calling out, we don't care. One of their, their owner was attacking these other orgs for saying, you know, like, you guys can make all the content you want. We're going to care about winning first. But if you don't make good content, you can't get the money to then get the best players. Or, you know, it's it's like... Do you want to play for the New York Yankees um, and get paid the same as playing for an irrelevant team? Like you want to be on the team that everyone knows um, and that these players dream about playing. And then let's get into 100 Thieves. So 100 Thieves is kind of, I would say, maybe a hybrid model of the two. And they also um, do a little bit with merchandise too. So 100 Thieves was started by a guy, um, Nate Shot. He was a former Optic Gaming player and knew how important he had his own large following, which I think I've mentioned a couple times in this podcast. He had his own large following from being a player at Optic Gaming and having to be a content creator first that he knew kind of how to create an esports org. And originally it was just him creating content and then branding his merchandise with the Hunter Thieves. But then he actually was able to get some investors from traditional sports teams um, uh, to then invest in his brand. And then he was able to buy his own League of Legends spots. And he... So he didn't have the players become the influencer, but he, he purchased film crews and documentary crews and people that knew how to create content to then create content of the players instead of the creator, players creating their own content. Um, and then he's been able to increase his merchandise sales and making it very desirable. It's almost on the level of like some streetwear brands you may have heard of, like Supreme. He's trying to create an esports lifestyle brand that is like Supreme, but also has teams. Um, it's a very interesting approach, and it's his organization has become one of the fastest growing organizations in the world when it comes to esports. Um, he's been able to expand into Valorant, um, Call of Duty. Um, they recently pulled out of Counter Strike, but most once COVID hit, most Americans 
but U.S. Counter Strike kind of fell off a cliff a little bit, so that's not really, not really an indication of their org in general. But uh, their general business model is content that not that isn't necessarily player focused, but they have uh, merchandise, content, and then they also try to get the best players. Um, and you can kind of see that how well they've been doing that with their growth. And then let's talk about another another, another similar um, organization, Face Clan. Now. They, they, their business model, they were all influencers at first. They just kind of made Call of Duty videos together in their mom's basement when they were 18-year-olds, and it eventually just kind of blew up. They had their own house full of just influencers and people that made good content, and they recruit people based on content. However, what they did was they used this money from making the content to then buy esports spots and recruit players to play for them, and players wanted to play for them because they knew FaceClan for their content. Um, and they're they're have have heavy influence in pretty much all esports. Call of Duty, um, they have the Atlanta Phase, um, they have a CS:GO team, they have some of the best Fortnite players, um, and there's also a big rivalry between them and Optic Gaming. Um, and to go back on Optic Gaming a little bit, um, their business model was kind of shaken up by some bad uh, M&A activity. So Optic Gaming they raised capital with outside investors, and then these outside investors then. Um, shut down a lot of their a lot of their other esports brands. So after Opticum had become huge in Call of Duty with their content first branding, they expanded to Halo, Gears of War, and brought that same mentality there. But when outside investors came in, they kind of shut this down because they didn't really realize kind of how esports worked in that sense. Um, so there's there's a big rivalry between Optic and Optic and Phase, although Optic has kind of fallen off of other esports outside of Call of Duty. Um, and then there's another brand, G2. They're more of a Counter Strike team, but they're a, Pretty similar to NB in that they're all about the players. So there's a couple of different ways to build these models, just in general: content, merchandise, and um, you know, getting those players and winning. So um, e- each org balances in this differently, but it's generally a balance between the three. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about how esports teams make their money. How do they make their revenue? So esports teams make their income in a variety of different ways. However, about 75% of their income is generated directly through sponsorship deals. Because of how fast esports have rose to popularity, esports teams have been able to attract lots of really well-known sponsors. A few examples of these esports um, e- team sponsors are Mountain Dew, Red Bull, Coca-Cola, Teen Mobile, MasterCard, even State Farm. And you can see just from that list that these sponsorships are kind of all over the place. And while these sponsorships are great, they are also not the most reliable source of income because many esports teams have found it very difficult to hold on to their sponsorships because of how quickly games come out and in of popularity and how quickly games change and affect the teams as a whole. Now, the other 25% of esports teams' income comes directly from broadcast revenue, merchandise sales, prize money, naming rights, and through sponsorships. And as Connor said before, esports teams do make a lot of money, so although these only are 25%, it still comes out to a decent amount. So the esports industry faces a lot of issues and problems. Could you tell us some, about some of them? Yeah, definitely. So one of the concerns that I think Mark Cuban brought up one time was that esports are tough to invest in because the meta is always changing. If you're not familiar with meta is, it's kind of the best way. It's kind of like the unofficial way to play a game. You know, if you're competing in a game, you want to play, use the best tactics, use the best weapons, use the best whatever it may be in that particular game. Now, developers are constantly updating games for the general population, and this in turn changes the meta of uh, what, what esports professional players use. Now, you might be thinking this probably is an issue. You know, they're the best players in the world. They can just adapt. 
However, it makes things tricky from a general manager standpoint or an investor standpoint. Um, the meta could change in a way that uh, makes it so the fans aren't necessarily interested in the game anymore. Like kind of how Call of Duty did while when they moved, they moved from like games where they added jetpacks to the game, and that completely changed the way the way the game was played and who were the best players. And that's the issue from the general manager standpoint. But when they did that, they alienated a lot of the a lot of the player base who wanted to play a realistic Call of Duty, realistic first person shooter, and jetpacks aren't a thing yet. So they moved to other franchises. And Call of Duty kind of lost the ability to get these players interested in the professional league and maybe killed some interest in the professional league. Um, and then additionally, you know, there could be game modes game modes that don't become popular anymore. Like, what happens if tomorrow Battle Royale is no longer popular? And what does is, what is the Fortnite competitive scene do? Because it's so new that it's not like these these games are, you know, like soccer. It's not, not like it's been a sport for 100 years. So the meta could change, and then investors could be left kind of screwed over without um, an investment with value. And then when it comes to updating the game, uh, from a general manager's perspective, say let's say you have a player who's good with um, good with long range weaponry in a game. Uh, a developer could update could update the game to mess with the stats of these weapons and make it so short range short range weapons are more effective in a game, and that could screw over a team that was primarily um, maybe more balanced on the long range side because their players don't really aren't as good with those weapons. Or when, it move, when Call of Duty moved to jetpacks, you could have younger players who are better with the movement uh, as, a, as opposed to maybe aim who then benefit from a more complex movement system. And so the always changing meta is really going to change what players are on our team. And you know, since esports hasn't really been a franchise model for a while, most people are going to either support an org or they're going to support their favorite players who maybe might be their favorite influencers. So if some of their favorite players are no longer in the game, um, they're not going to watch the game anymore. Uh, like, just for example, um, uh, uh, Enable in Call of Duty was a Halo guy and was used to complex movement systems. When, the, when he switched to Call of Duty, he was good because he was used to this. But when Call of Duty moved back to um, no jetpacks, he was kind of left on the bench and didn't really know how to adapt. And just a lot when his fans were going to follow him, so it's really tough from a general manager's perspective and an investor's perspective to kind of balance this changing meta and you know really really do well with your investment. And a lot of people are a lot of people are speculating that the Overwatch League might have been an example of how you know changing consumer preferences can maybe screw over an esports league and kind of change how the meta of video games in general. Um, another th- another issue with esports is that. Not all games have developers that are going to support esports and competition. For example, uh, last year's Call of Duty game was developed by Infinity Ward, and they have taken a stance, surprisingly, because their own develop- own publisher supports their esports league, that they think that competitive is detrimental to uh, the experience of casual players, which has been a debate in the industry. You know, are games geared towards competitive competitive play with maybe a high skill gap? Um, uh, not as good for the everyday player who just comes home from work just to play video games and de-stress because they have to sink a lot of time in to get good at the game and develop that skill gap. So there's a lot of companies that develop games that people can just come home and casually play. And there's been outcries from the competitive community because they want a skill gap and they want to be able to compete in these games. And there's kind of a, a tug of war between casual players and competitive players. And there's also some in the middle that think that they can coexist with maybe different rule sets like we've seen with the gentlemen's agreements 
and you know competitive game modes. But some developers, for example, Infinity Ward, like I talked about um, just a few moments earlier, didn't support competitive play at all. Um, the players, professional Call of Duty players, hated the game because the game had a fast time to fast time to eliminate a player, which made it harder for a player to um, use his movement or do some do do some skill to avoid um, getting taken out by a lower skill player. And Infinity Ward further didn't support competitive play because they didn't update. They never provided a game mode for casual players to play a competitive um, rule set. They never added any for league play or ranked play, which really limited um, the ability of the professional league to reach new players because the developers didn't support it. Um, and there's also been examples of developers going out and uh, crushing third-party third-party tournament promoters. Um, Nateshot tried to have tried to have a charity tournament with his sponsor Cash App and um, Call of Duty before he was partner of Call of Duty had a team went and canceled this tournament because they were upset that he they, he didn't want to buy a professional team from them. Um, so the developers have a big part in you know what kind of role competitive will play and investors in it should be worried about and fans you know should know that you know the esport they're playing today might not be the one they'll play tomorrow because developers could go and kind of squash third-party apps or not develop the game to be competitive which uh you know there's pros and cons of it to that um there's also a high barrier to entry for esports especially with the franchise leagues you know a 25 million dollar buy-in prevented a lot of organizations with some really good players not be able to participate in the Overwatch League and the Call of Duty League, um, and then also to get some of the players required to get into real league matches where you get some real exposure requires paying these players a lot of money. Um, it's not quite to the level of, you know, NFL or MLB athletes yet, but it's still up there and it's not cheap, especially for companies that are essentially startups to be paying such high salaries because this is. Um, this is such a new industry, so I mean, most companies, I mean, there's no public esports org, and you know, a lot of these are essentially in a venture capital, are being supported by venture capital firms, and not all of them are revenue positive yet, or may ever be. Um, and another issue that's kind of plaguing the industry, and especially with leagues that aren't franchise, are the constant ro- roster changes. Call of Duty specifically had this problem where, and it still does in this amateur scene where. Rosters can be completely changed and people can get dropped within hours or within hours. There could be seven roster changes on the same team in one day because there's no contracts for a lot of the amateur leagues um, that are a lot of the competitive amateur leagues and there's no nothing binding these players and players can have a player in their team and then drop that player right before the lo- roster locks so that player cannot play or fi- find a new team in time. Um, there's been a lot of examples of this. For example, um, Parasite in the Call of Duty scene has been dropped probably over 100 times in his career. Um, and he's essentially been blackballed from ever entering the pro league because, again, it's about networking and he does not have the best network. But he's, he, people just like to drop him all the time. And he was dropped an hour before the roster lock. Um, so that's, and it also make that, the issue with that is it, it makes it inconsistent for players to, you know, make a living if they're going to get dropped instantly by a team. Um, and it also makes it tough for people to watch the, the sport if they have no idea what team their favorite player is on or if, you know, one one day they're supporting their favorite team and it's completely different players the next day. Um, and, you know, franchising was supposed to stop this, but it hasn't stopped amateur leagues from doing this. And at least in the Call of Duty scene with the franchise league, I mean, rosters are changing every week, which is a lot when you compare it to the NBA. 
the NBA has a free agency period where you know there's a lot of roster change and there's still a little bit of roster change during the season, but it's nowhere near to the level that esports teams have had. And a lot of it's also because these are really young guys, younger than NBA players, younger than NFL players. Um, a lot of cases they're still high schoolers, and a lot of times there's no, nothing tying them down to a team, which is really really hampering the industry. So I think just in general, just the fast changing nature of the industry is what is really causing it, ca- causing some issues for the industry. Can you tell us about some of the most prominent and well-known players in esports? Yeah, definitely. So um, when it comes to League of Legends, Faker, uh, he's a 25-year-old um, guy from South Korea. He's kind of considered to be the best there. and He's made millions from competitions. Um, he's a three-time world champion. Um, then when it comes to CSGO, there's a couple names that come, that come to my mind immediately. Uh, one is Simple. He's a 23-year-old from Ukraine. He began playing Counter-Strike when he was four years old, and he went professional in 2012. Um, Nika was a Bosnian um, guy. He's 25 years old. He used to be on FaZe Clan. He's on uh, G2 now. Um, and, you know, both these guys are both Eastern European, and that kind of highlights how some of these games are different. Um, CSGO is very popular around the world just because he doesn't have very expensive hardware requirements. Um, so countries that, like, don't have as modern infrastructures as, say, the U.S. or... Um, say the U.S. or maybe Britain, uh, people in those countries can play the games with pretty readily accessible computers. Um, So that's what you see, particularly in Counter-Strike, a lot of Eastern European players are some of the best players in the world. Um, When it comes to Valorant, um, very new esports, so most of the players are former professional CSGO players. Uh, First one that comes to mind is Hiko. He's 31. He's an American. He's a former pro CSGO player. He's captain of the Hunter Thieves team. Um, and he got into gaming after hockey hockey injury forced him to quit regular sports. Um, and you might notice he's a little bit older than some other guys that I've talked about. Um, and that's something in particular with Valorant because it's such a new esport. Um, it's generally easier to kind of break into. There's a lot less competition. So these older guys who might have, you know, not as good reflex skills anymore um, can kind of hop in and just rely on their kind of game awareness and general game skills. Um, and particularly, there's going to be a lot of Americans in Valorant because um, COVID-19 made it so that um, American teams couldn't go to the European events to compete, and the European events are where the legit, legitimate best players are in the most competitive events. So um, it really made a lot of people um, leave the American scene and you know go into a new, new game like Valorant. Um, another player, Nitro, former American CSGO player, who's also in 100 Thieves team, um, Asana, he's 17 years old. He's a former CSGO player, and he's on 100 Thieves. Um, and then one of the more controversial figures, uh, he's formerly one of the best Overwatch players, but he left for Valorant, is Sinatra. Um, he's an American. Um, he dropped out of high school to play video games. And why he's controversial is that he's currently suspended from playing because there are some pretty serious um, allegations against him of abuse by his former girlfriend, and the developers actually suspended him from playing the game. But he's worth mentioning because... Prior to these allegations, he was one of the most popular and considered one of the best Overwatch and Valorant players in the world. Um, but it, it is it is it is not good for the sport that we there are people like that who have have some pretty serious allegations against against them. Um, and when it comes to Call of Duty, um, it's very popular in America. A lot of American players, mostly American players, actually. Um, and there's also a lot of crossover between them and influencers. So first one that comes to mind is uh, Skump. He's an Optic player, was on um, Chicago Huntsman for a year while Optic was under different ownership. It's back under the original ownership now. Um, and he's one of the most popular players and popular influencers in the Call of Duty and esports scene. 
Um, he's been around since the very early days of Call of Duty. Um, and he started, he, he was playing professional Call of Duty before he had even graduated high school and was going to events, missing high school classes before he graduated high school. Um, now he's a much older guy, but um, he's still considered one of the best and one of the, one of the most popular. And he, he won the world championship in, uh, during Call of Duty Infinite Warfare um, a few years ago. And then the next one that comes to mind is um, Optic Hex. Um, he's the owner of Optic Gaming and partner of Energy. Partner with Ener- he's partnered with NRG Gaming, um, which is kind of the umbrella company that Optic's now owned under now. Um, he briefly was a pro, pro player, briefly was a competitor, but why he's kind of important in the esports scene is that he's the owner of Optic and he's the one that really pushed the content first mentality. Um, and he's one of the most well-respected owners in esports. Um, and he has he's an influencer in his own right, very popular YouTube channel. Um, he still makes vlog videos every day. Um, and he was one of the first people that really... Uh, brought this idea of an esports team house, so all the members of the esports team or content creation team would live together in the same house, um, and this really boosted uh, esports popularity and, in particular, Call of Duty's popularity, especially in America. Um, another one, formal, he is another Optic Gaming member, um, less of a content creator than some of the other guys on the on the team, but he's one of the most popular guys because he won a world championship with uh, Optic Scum. He's also a former Halo professional player. Um, next one comes to mind is Envoy. He's kind of a young, younger guy, and um, Hex is really kind of trying to develop him to uh, be kind of Scum's successor and kind of be the next figurehead of the Call of Duty esports scene and Call of Duty, um, Call of Duty content creation scene. Um, next one that comes to mind, Dashi, another Optic Gaming member. Uh, what's What's interesting about him is while most members of Opti Gaming left the comp- left the organization when um, Immortals Gaming Club purchased it, and Hex was no longer the owner, he unfortunately got in, got into a weird situation with his contract and had to stay. Um, and he's most well known for uh, he, he Call of Duty is one of those esports and esports in general rely a lot on managing personalities. Um, and the new organization wasn't really able to manage his personality very well, and he was he got benched even though he's considered one of the best players in the world in Call of Duty. Um, and just an interesting like little story about him: one of their players during the championship um, last year, while it was under different management, was being kicked off the internet connection because of COVID nineteen. Uh, they had to play online, um, and they had to they actually had to sub um, Dashi in, and you really never see substitutes mid match in esports. Substitutes are more of a thing where if it's not really working out, you get um, switched back into the te- switched into the team. You know, maybe after an event's over, but they switched uh, him out mid match. Really, the first time it's ever happened in esports, or particularly Call of Duty. Um, another one, Crimsix. He's widely considered to be the best player of all time in Call of Duty. He has the most world championships out of any player in Call of Duty. He's an older guy. He's been around the scene for a while. Um, was a former member of Optic Gaming, but left after new management took it over. He didn't go with when new management took it over, he didn't go with the rest of them to Chicago. He was recruited by Envy, which is another big esports org, um, and he's kind of there. He's kind of their poster child right now. Um, not really big on the content creation side of things. Um, he was mostly against how Optic Gaming was so pro content because he didn't want to give away his strategies, their strategies by streaming their um, their practices. So um, right now, he's Envy's captain um, on the Dallas Empire team. Uh, another person to keep in mind, or another prominent player, is Clayster. Uh, he was he's he's been bounced back a couple times over his career, but he is generally considered to be one of the best players. He has multiple world championships to his name. Um, he he used to be on Envy with uh, 
with the Crim6, but Call of Duty changed from 5v5 to 4v4, so they had to drop one player, and Clayster is an older guy. They didn't need two kind of old leadership people on the team, so he was one who got kicked off the team. And a lot of people were upset with how Envy did that. They kicked him off the team the day after they won the World Championship, so he didn't really get to celebrate much with his team. Um, but now he's the captain of the New York Subliners uh, team, and they they're have a lot of success under him. Um, another one, he's a much younger guy, very new to the scene, um, won his first world championship in his, one of his first real years of competing um, with Call of Duty. Originally, like anyone could play any age, but at a certain point, they established that you had to be above 18 to play um, professionally. Um, so he was, out of, he, he was out of the scene for a while, but then when he turned 18, he kind of got back on the scene and was able to win a world championship with uh, some of the other guys I'm going to talk about. But with Clayster, he was on the same team as Clayster that year uh, for Black Ops 4. They won a world championship for E United. Um, he's widely considered to be one of the, um, one of the most up-and-coming players um, and one of the best uh, sub, submachine gun players in, in the game. Um, he's on FaZe Clan right now. He doesn't really make a ton of content, unlike the uh, Optic guys. Um, and the next one I want to talk about is uh, another FaZe guy, BZ, younger guy, one of the best players in the world, Sunil Simp. He's also in FaZe Clan. Another guy in FaZe Clan, Celium, considered one of the best to be in the world, one of the fastest players, one of the most up-and-coming players, um, again, on FaZe Clan. Another one who's not technically in the league right now, he's in the amateur league, but he's still one of the most popular players, not considered one to be the best, but his name's Sensor. Um, he was one of the best players, you know, five, six years uh, ago, but he's gotten older, and he's had a hard time in getting on teams because he's essentially been blacklisted from playing um, just because his personality, unlike a lot of these guys, he's also like a professional bodybuilder, and that personality doesn't really mesh well with, you know, kind of your stereotypical kind of esports gamer guy. Um, and it's kind of a big joke in the community that, oh, when is Sensor going to pick up onto a team? But a lot of teams want him. They just don't want him to be a player because he has one of the largest content followings. He used to be on FaZe Clan, and they had him do a lot of content while he was on the bench. Um, but he's all, he, he, used, he was on New York last, uh, last season in Call of Duty uh, purely to make content, and although they told him he was going to be in the starting lineup. So he's a big, big name in the scene, although he's not considered one of the best. Uh, as far as content goes, he's kind of been revolutionary with that along with some of the optic guys. Um, then there's Parasite. I may have briefly mentioned him earlier, but similar to uh, Sensor, he's kind of been blacklisted from playing. He's one of the most dropped players um, in Call of Duty and pretty much any esport in general. And that's, again, because of personality. A big part of esports, again, is personality, managing his personalities. His personality has been known to be hard to man manage. Just for example, he reached out to one of his teammates' girlfriend mid uh, esports during an esports event and tried to get her to cheat on his teammate with him. Um, so he's widely known to be not the best kind of person, um, and it's it's been an issue for him trying to get back into the league. Um, and then talking about Standy, uh, Standy, he's right now on the Minnesota team. He just got added to the team. He's he's a 19 year old, um, formerly an amateur player. Um, and it just goes to show that these young people are uh, very up and coming and will to be able to take spots from some established names in the scene. And he's really proven himself and really helped turn around the Minnesota, uh, Minnesota roster. Um, another the guy he actually replaced was Major Maniac. Um, he used to be on phase, but when they moved from 5v5, moved from 5v5 to 4v4, he was replaced by Standy. Um, and actually, right now, he's being reinstated back onto the Minnesota roster uh, they're, they're dropping accuracy, and accuracy has been having a tough, tough a stretch of playing. Um, 
He's one of the he's he's a Muslim player, and right now it's uh he was having some issues playing during Ramadan because of the fasting. Um, and ultimately they decided his performance wasn't good enough during that. So he got replaced. Um, and then another player to talk about is Attach. Um, he's also, he was on face clan for a while, but right now he is on the Minnesota team. And he's also one of the guys that does a lot with content. Another guy does a lot with content. One of the older players in the league, one, uh, one world championships, apathy. He's had a, a couple of bad years, but he's widely known to, have been one of the best players in the world, and he's also one of the um, one of the more popular content creators. Unlike some of the other guys, some of the younger guys who haven't really established themselves as content creators yet. Um, and then there's Zuma. Zuma was a former Phase Clan Phase Clan player. Was on New York Subliners um, last year, but recently, um, like the, from just playing so many video games, um, and he had some sort of defect in his thumb. It eventually just wore out the ligaments in his hand, so he can no longer played a professional level without causing permanent damage to his body. So he decided to retire this year. And um, one thing people talk about with regular sports is that athletes you know, have a plan for after they, they're done playing. And his retirement came a lot earlier than anyone expected. But what esports players have shown themselves to be able to do is they can effectively manage this retirement because because of being an esports player, you're also somewhat of a content creator. And what he did, he really established himself as a content creator, as an influencer after his retirement, after his retirement from professional Call of Duty. Um, but previously, he was one of the best players and well known, um, well liked um, on, on Face Clan and New York Subliners. And then another player, a couple players I want to talk about are Hook, Shotzi, and Illy. They were all in the Dallas Empire team that won the World Championship of Crim Six and Clayster. Um, Shotzi was one of the best Halo professional players, but Halo's esports scene was dying, so he left and joined Call of Duty. Uh, and he was largely unproven. He never played professional Call of Duty, but he was just such a good, just gamer that he was able to pick up, pick it up really fast. And has been, he was actually voted MVP of the league last year. So, um, and then Hook, he was on Dallas Empire, but the, he got dropped and was picked up by Hunter Thieves, and was largely considered to have been one of the worst moves in esports by a team ever. He was arguably, arguably. Uh, their best or second best player, and they dropped him because, again, um, managing personalities is really tough, and his personality did not mesh well with Crim6. Um, then some other players, Pristini and Arcides, are actually twins that are both professional Call of Duty players. Um, they're known as the twins. They've almost always been on the same team, except for this year. It's the first year they're not on the same team. Um, they won a world championship together. They were an Optic Gaming together, or sorry, Chicago Huntsman together. Um, and Arcides is now on phase, and Pristini is now on the Seattle Surge, which uh, also has Gunless and Octane. Now, Seattle Surge, um, another one of those uh, teams that was a well-known organization before the franchise model, but now they've kind of become in a little bit of disrepair. They've been one of the, consistently one of the worst teams the past two years, um, despite having arguably the best main assault rifle player in the game, uh, Octane. Um, and a lot of this, again, has been managing personalities. Uh, they had two of the former world champions, champions on their team, Enable and Karma, or sorry, uh, Car Enable wasn't a world championship, but Karma was one of the best players in the world, but they were both older players, and they weren't able to manage personalities, and they ended up both retiring, leaving Octane to have to manage some new talent. Um, and Gunless, Gunless has consistently been recognized as one of the best flex players in the league, however, he's been benched multiple times, he actually benches himself a lot, because he... Uh, he doesn't. He is uh, very hard to work with. Generally, I'm just only known to be like that. 
Um, he got benched by Chicago Huntsman, and he previously benched himself because he didn't want to work with the teammates. So, again, a big part of it is just managing personalities. Um, and then Looney was also in the Seattle Surge team, but he got benched because he's kind of an older player. He didn't have the best reflexes. Um, and it's just you have a very – for some of these players, if you're not one of the top content creators or just best players ever and you're an older guy, um, you're not going to have a very long lifespan in league, which is important to note. Um, which is why making content and becoming an influencer is so important. Um, and then there's also some foreign players in the league, Bance, Kleenex, Hydra, Afro. Hydra and Afro, re- until recently, were not able to get into the U.S. and therefore could not play in the professional league. And this was largely because of COVID-19, which is one of the big effects COVID-19 had on it. It was already more of an American esport, but because of online, it made it almost impossible for foreign players to have a fighting chance in the league uh, unless they're able to move to America. Um, and they're also some of the best players. Hydra is, well, largely considered to be one of the best players in the league right now. Um, and then it's just some other guys, Kenny, Slasher, Venom. Um, they were all Hunter Thieves players. However, Slasher uh, got dropped for Venom. Um, Slasher, again, is if you have Slasher in your team, he is very good at managing personalities, but he is a very like kind of authoritarian kind of tight tight uh hardworking guy and so it, it as a result it could negatively impact your team and a lot of teams avoid him for that but if you have slash in your team he's going to be the captain and he's going to be one driving the the culture but he's again considered one of the best players in the league um and then when it comes to influencers that are these are influencers uh it's, it's kind of a hybrid between being an influencer and a professional player um a lot of these people are Call of Duty Warzone professional players slash influencers and also Fortnite influencers slash professional players. Uh, first one that comes to mind is Nick Merckx, formerly was a, a player on 100 Thieves and influencer for 100 Thieves. Um, however, there was a bad business deal and he there was a disagreement between him and 100 Thieves owner Nate Shot, and he is he left 100 Thieves and joined FaZe Clan and now he's a part owner of FaZe Clan. Uh, he's one of the probably the most popular Call of Duty streamer and one of the most popular Fortnite streamers in the world right now. Um, another one is Cloaksy, was a former professional player for FaZe Clan in Fortnite. However, there was some contract disagreements, and he refused to play for them anymore. Uh, he only recently got out of his contract with FaZe Clan and is currently doesn't have an organization behind him, but um, he was he was widely considered to be one of the best um, Fortnite players. However, he has um, transitioned into more of a content creator, influencer, playing mostly Call of Duty Warzone now. Symphony, similar guy, professional Fortnite player that's trans uh, was a member of NRG and their professional Fortnite team for a bit, um, but he's now on his own um, and plays primarily Warzone now. Um, some other guys that are big in, in the prof- professional Call of Duty Warzone scene and Fortnite scene are Huskers. He was actually a former Apex Legends player, which is another battle royale game. Um, Joe Woe. Tim the Tapman is more of an influencer. He's not the best at uh, competitor, but he still competes in um, the events just because most fans find the events incredibly entertaining. So he still competes, although he's not considered to be one of the best. Um, and then with the addition of Call of Duty Warzone, a lot of Call of Duty pros that were maybe unable to get spots in professional teams because of the franchising model eliminated a lot of top players that just were just right under the bar of being on the, some of the a few teams that were allowed to have franchise teams. Um, so people like Rated, Blasts, uh, Tommy, they were all former professional Call of Duty players, but they transitioned into professional Warzone players and uh, more of content creators. Uh, and one of the one of the interesting things is that 
um, Call of Duty's Battle Royale and Call of Duty's uh, main game run on different engines. So it used to be that most professional Call of Duty players could also uh, play in these professional Warzone events on the side. However, because they're on different engines now, they feel uncomfortable playing on a different engine because um, they're afraid it'll mess up their skills on the, on the Call of Duty engine that they're actually competing in. So it's caused a big, big disconnect currently between the Call of Duty professional community and pro the professional Call of Duty Warzone and uh, Fortnite communities um, in esports. And then another guy, he's actually part of New York Subliners, but he's just a professional Warzone player, Aiden. He was previously one of the best professional Fortnite players, but he's now kind of transitioned into more of a professional Warzone player. And he's actually signed to one of these franchise leagues, not to be a player in their team, but just be a, an influencer and a content creator and to compete in these uh, professional Warzone events for them, which is, there's no franchise league for Warzone. The, the teams just want these people to be in their organizations to generate popularity um, and generate wins for them. Um, and just some of the top top Fortnite influencers, people like Ninja. For a while, he was the most popular streamer on, on the world. Then he moved to Mixer, and we moved to Mixer. It got shut down eventually, and he's had a hard time kind of picking back up his following. Um, Cypher PK. Um, TP is a former professional Call of Duty coach and player that has become that has quit the professional Call of Duty scene to become a Call of Duty influence, Call of Duty Warzone influencer, um, and a Call of Duty professional player or Call of Duty Warzone professional player. Other people, Swag or Face Swag, member of Face Clan, um, he's another uh, big professional Warzone player. Phase uh, uh, Crowder, he's actually the coach of the. Uh, franchise league uh, Atlanta phase, but he also plays in competitive Warzone events on his own time. Um, DS Biffle, uh, another up and coming uh, guy in the Warzone competitive scene. Um, phase Blaze, a member of Phase Clan, which is mostly influencers other than professional teams, but he, as an influencer, plays in a lot of professional events for Warzone. And similarly, Phase Pomage, that's the same thing. Um, and Mutex was Mutex is another guy. He used to be an analyst for the Dallas Empire on their search and destroy team, but he um, had there's some audio files that came out from him that he said some offensive things and he was dropped from their team. However, he's he's kind of he's came out and um, kind of rebuilt his reputation as a Warzone competitor. Um, another guy, Exact, another big Warzone competitor. Um, so there's just some of the top guys across esports. I know I talked a lot about Warzone, Call of Duty, and Fortnite, but uh, there's also some top CSGO Valorant players that um, are pretty important to know, too. Wow. Thank you so much, Connor, for answering all these questions today. I hope everyone enjoyed today's podcast, Everything You Need to Know About Esports, and I strongly encourage you all to go back and listen to more game creativity podcasts. This is it for today's podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and hope to hope you come back soon.